From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. I imagine you didn't get all of your holiday shopping done on Black Friday, and that if you're listening in, you might have some food-focused folks on your gift list. Might I recommend a cookbook? Remember those things we used to get recipes from before TikTok? I still love cookbooks. I have so many of them that the stacks have turned into furniture in my house. No kidding. And every year I look forward to my annual call with Celia Sack of Omnivore Books in San Francisco. Celia joins us every holiday season for recommendations of the cookbooks she loved over the last 12 months. Hi, Celia. Hi, Evan. How are you? I'm good. I can't believe how fast this has come around. I I can't either. I can't either. Whenever your producers get in touch with me to schedule this, I'm like, no, it can't be already. (laughs) It's impossible. Yeah, you know, I've kind of lost track of how many years we've we've done this. But instead of getting straight to it, can you um, share how Omnivore started and what prompted you to open a store dedicated to cookery and drink books? Oh, sure. So it's actually, this month is our 15th uh, anniversary of the store being opened. So yeah, so it's a good time to ask. Uh, I was a rare book specialist for many years at an auction house, and um, my specialty was all sorts of things. I I was the rare golf book expert. I was in charge of modern lit, but my um, collecting interest became books on food because I felt like those books tell me the most about um, a time, a place, a culture. I mean, it's anthropology, it's archaeology, it's, you know, it just sort of tells the whole story of a people through their food. And it also is what brings people together so much around the world. So that's why I opened it. I wanted to share my passion with everyone. So interesting. So let's talk about the new books that came okay. across our transoms this year. Was there a category of cooking that seemed to dominate the shelves this year? Well, yeah, I would say, I mean, you know, it takes it takes books a little while to catch up with um with what the passion is. So uh, the subject of the books might not have caught up yet to the fact that we're ending this year with two wars and a lot of people are really looking for comfort and security in their food. And so I think that there's a big need for comfort foods in in all categories and people were really buying those books that were coming out this year that have a real emphasis on bringing people together, making you feel warm and cozy. Um, I was so happy to see that there were a lot of Asian cookbooks that came out and also Asian American and also some African cookbooks. You know, those are types of cookbooks where they used to, at least when I first started and certainly before that, just cover the entire continent. They didn't go into regions or, you know, specific areas at all. And now, finally, we're starting to see, like, one from um, Sierra Leone, one from Nigeria, and one from Senegal, you know. So there are, uh, and same with the Asian ones. There's Made in Taiwan is all Taiwanese. And, you know, there is just a really big interest in just getting more specific. And I'm really happy about that. Going back to the comfort um, books that you talked about at the beginning of our conversation, is there one you would pick? I'm going to give you two. And uh, these are two sort of different types of people. Um, So Molly Baz's 
more is more, which is just about using everything you have. She calls for you to use an entire, you know, head of garlic instead of one clove or an entire thing of basil to make your pesto instead of just one sprig or two sprigs. So her book is definitely more is more. Use all the butter. Very comforting. And then the other one that came out this spring is Alison Roman's Sweet Enough. And that's her first baking book and really fun. It's not like her past books, which sort of challenge you on uh, flavor combinations or ingredients that you haven't tried before. It's real standards of what you just love to have in a dessert, gooey and chewy and, and sweet and wonderful. What books do you think both nail wanderlust, but also great recipes? Mm. Well, I think the ones that I was mentioning that came out this year that are Asian, the Made in Taiwan, one that we just got in that I'm so excited about by this woman, Sharon Wee, called Growing Up in a Nonya Kitchen. Uh, It's Singaporean and I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years back, her book had gone out of print and a woman who is not from Singapore plagiarized the entire book, basically. And in fact, it had to be withdrawn and destroyed. The publisher had to had to um, have everybody return their copies. And she finally got her due. So, and that was so frustrating because everyone at that time wanted to go ahead and buy her her cookbook instead to support her. And it was out of print. It was an Australian publisher, very small one. And so they just got it back out. We got it this week um, in a beautiful hardcover edition. And I really encourage people to buy it. It's a, it's such a great book. And it has, I mean, this woman even plagiarized all of her personal memories of growing up in Singapore and stuff. So it's so nice to have the real thing and be able to support her with it. Was there a sleeper hit of the year this year? Yes. <laughs> there was this book that we got over 400 pre-orders for from around the country that I none of us had ever heard of this kid. Um, his name is John Kung, K-U-N-G, and it's called Kung Food. And he's really popular on, I think it's YouTube or TikTok or both. Yeah, I guess it's TikTok. And he came and gave a talk. He is so charming. He's gay. He's gorgeous. He's like totally into what he's cooking. And I I swear these orders were from like Indiana, Alabama. We were shipping it all over the country for this sort of home Chinese home cooking and um, and Chinese American. He lives in Detroit and uh, he's just a Midwestern boy and I love him. And I was so happy that his book was the sleeper hit this year for us. Okay, so now we're going to go on to the speed round. Give me a title for a gift for the following people. Okay. Following for the following needs. Okay, I'm ready. For the baker. Okay. Bread and Roses by Rose Wild. She made, I gotta say, I went to a, a demo she did. It was the best cake I've ever had. And I'm 54, so I've had a lot of cake. And it's lovely. It's about using all sorts of alternative grains in baking, and she does a really masterful job with it. The other one that I would say is Bake Smart by Samantha Senaverante. She really likes to use a lot of interesting spices in her flavors. Uh, Like there's a saffron and cardamom cream caramel, creme caramel, that sounds fabulous in the book. But what I love also is it's great for beginners and pros. Dory Greenspan, queen of baking, loves her. 
And there are all these core recipes followed by specific ones. So it's great because you can sort of do the core ones and keep them in your pantry and and prepare, you know, have them to go for when you want to use certain recipes in there. Okay, so now the book that we want to concentrate on for our next cookbook club dinner. I'm going to go with Portico by Leah Koenig, uh, Jewish Roman cuisine. And there's, you know, not a unlikable recipe in there. Everything is is wonderful. There are a lot of vegetable recipes like the um, Roman artichokes, the Jewish artichokes. And of course, there's plenty of pasta. Okay, now for our vegans. We've got Evergreen Vietnamese by Andrea Nguyen. She's excellent, fail-safe, professional cookbook writer. I love Andrea and everything she does. So that is a great book. I would also go with uh, Stephen Satterfield's Vegetable Revelations. He owns a restaurant in Atlanta called Miller Union, and I've been there. It's wonderful. He's got tasty and beautiful Southern twists on global dishes like grilled okra with chipotle mayo. I just find them really delicious. And then another book that is that looks really beautiful and large uh, that I I haven't tackled myself, but it's called The Vegan Baker by Zachary Bird. And I'm just really happy to see some of these vegan, especially baking books, finally come out in hardcover and, and be sort of comprehensive rather than these thin little ignored books by small presses that they used to, they used to be relegated to. Okay. Now a coffee table book. Okay. Oh, there is a gorgeous, gorgeous one that I love. And if you haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend you get it. It's called Muscles by Sergio Herman. It's this large gray tome with a shiny muscle on the cover. And it's got recipes inside that are really good. I've I've sold it to anyone who I've pointed it out to, especially professional chefs, uh, because it's got really sort of high-end mussels recipes. But also, it's such a love letter to mussels and where they come from and the beach and the rocks and the seaside. Absolutely gorgeous book. Okay, now a chef memoir or a food history? Okay, so we've got to go with the book of the of the season. Um, and because there's really no comparison to it, it's Fuchsia Dunlop's Invitation to a Banquet, the story of Chinese food. It could go in food history. It could go in food writing. Um, she is just uh, someone who has so much experience and mastery of Chinese, not just Chinese cooking, but the whole idea of of Chinese food. And she translates it to people who are not familiar with that cuisine in a way that is so respectful and interesting and it just draws you in. This book doesn't have any recipes, but she's written numerous cookbooks, um, the best, you know, most renowned books on on Sichuan food, on general Chinese cooking, on Hunan are all by her. Uh, she was the first Westerner allowed into this uh, cooking school in Sichuan province, and she wrote a great memoir called Shark's Fin and Sichuan Pepper about that number of years ago. Um, but Invitation to a Banquet is, I don't know if you saw it, made the you know, front cover of the New York Times book review. It's gotten reviewed in the Wall Street Journal. It's just getting the all the accolades that it should. What great recommendations. Thank you so much, Celia. My pleasure. It's always so fun to talk to you, Evan. 
That's Celia Sack, owner of Omnivore Books in San Francisco. Visit the Good Food website for her top picks for 2023. Coming up, the author of one of the books Celia spoke about joins us. Yawande Komolafe shares her everyday Lagos with us next. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Good Food. Reconnection can be a process. After leaving Nigeria as a teenager, Yowande Komolafe returned to her vibrant home of Lagos 20 years later with fresh eyes. Evoking memories through cooking, she was quickly reminded that sourcing ingredients meant enlisting mentors and a web of social relations. And using these ingredients came with the sacred knowledge passed down through oral histories. She takes us through her everyday Lagos. Hi. Hi, this is Yolande. How are you? I'm so grateful that you're here with us. The book is really beautiful. It's just so visually lively and your stories are just lovely. Wow, thank you so much. I wanted to inject the energy of Lagos into the book. And um, yeah, so that that makes sense that you're saying that. Thank you for saying that. Um, So give us an overview a bit of your background. Your parents are in Lagos. Um, Mm -hmm. When did you come to the U.S.? So I moved to the U.S. um, when I was 16. I moved here to go to college, and I have essentially been here ever since. I built a life here. I finished college, went to culinary arts school, worked in restaurants, um, and now I work as a columnist and a food writer at the New York Times. Would you be willing to share the emotional and political challenges that you faced during your first few years living here? Wow, I'm only just connecting the dots. I think that I moved here so young and it's really just taken a while for that to sink in. Now I have kids on my, of my own and I just can't imagine sending them off across the world at 16. Emotionally, I think I shut down. I, I think I did not allow myself to feel. I just decided that I was here to do a thing and I put my head down and I did it. And it's not until recently, I would say about five years ago, that I started kind of processing all the things that had happened. I lived undocumented for 10 years. Working in food, I just didn't see voices like mine being represented. I didn't see stories like mine represented. I didn't know anybody else that was undocumented um, while I worked in food. And when I tell my story and when I share my story, I'm hoping that it touches someone else who might be going through similar things um, and it validates them because that's what it did for me to like say it out loud. I'm undocumented. I'm an immigrant. Um, To say things like that out loud just validated it for me and helped me know that it wasn't just in my head. It's something that I'm actually going through. You started doing a dinner series from your home in Brooklyn How did you interlace themes of home and adaptation into that series? Mm. And what was Um, the role of memory? 
I started doing the dinner series because I wanted to feel a connection to Nigeria. Food is the way I explain, I examine, I move through the world. It helps me understand the world. Um, and so I turned to food and I turned to specifically Nigerian food because I had worked in all these like fancy restaurants and like French restaurants and Korean restaurants and all these other cuisines. And I never had really examined my own food. It was always something that I carried with me and it was always something that I had but I never really thought of it as something that I should examine. And so at that point in my life, I was at the point where I was trying to connect desperately with Nigeria because I hadn't been back in so long. I had been asking myself questions like, am I still Nigerian if I haven't been there in so long? And so the theme of what it means to move and uproot yourself and make a home in a new space, what it means to share your cuisine with others, what it means to be Nigerian. All of those were things that I was actively exploring in my own personal life. And so it made its way into the dinner series. And I would throw that questions out at the guest and we'll have a lively conversation and um, have different narratives. And it brought, it brought a lot of nuance into the conversation for me. So you hadn't gone back to Lagos in a really long time. Can you talk a bit, like paint a picture of it for us and talk about how it had changed when you went back after 17 years? So the first, again, that was another experience I that I couldn't process while I was going through it. I kind of went to, I hopped on a plane, went to Lagos with my husband, um, met my parents there, and we had a, a two-week period where we were just going to all these places where I'd been going to when I was little. But what I remember the most was how lively Lagos is. I, th I think I forgot about that aspect of Lagos where it's so lively. There's, there's loud music, there's traffic, there's people, colors, food. Um, and I, I had forgotten that aspect of Lagos, that it, it was so rich in culture and people and just, it felt like my senses were on fire and I couldn't shut it down until I had to actively remove myself from the space. Um, and that, that was like my favorite memory of being back in Lagos for the first time. So let's talk about food. What are some of the core components and essential flavors of Nigerian cuisine? Mm, we love strong flavors. We love rich flavors. So I would say red palm oil, which gives a floral bright orange hue to our dishes. I would say crayfish, which is dried shrimp, a type of dried shrimp, which gives like a nice umami flavor. I would say fermented locust bean, which is also an umami flavor. And I'd say spice, depending on what region you're from. Spices can differ from nice and woodsy or grassy or spice as in heat. I would say that all of those are core flavors of Nigerian cooking. Ekuru appears to be a good entry point um, mm. to Nigerian cooking. Can you describe the dish and how it's served? Yeah, ekuru is a white steamed bean dish. So the honey beans are soaked and um, peeled, the skin's peeled off. Then the beans are ground into a paste, and that paste is combined with some onions and some crayfish and wrapped in water lily leaves and steamed. It's firmer than a custard, but not as firm as a cake. 
if that makes sense. But it's a nice light entryway into the cuisine. It's a it's one of the foods that we serve in the morning. We don't really have breakfast foods. We have just foods that we serve in the morning that are light on your digestion. So it's one of those foods. It's like really light on your digestion. It's served with ogi, which is a fermented corn pudding, another pudding. And that's my favorite way to eat it is have ikuru and have a bowl of ogi and kind of do a dip in the ogi. Can can you, you, you mentioned about the idea of, of breakfast foods. Could you elaborate on the buka culture and the absence of our traditional ideas of breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Yeah, of course. Um, so buka is basically a, a place street side that serves a wide range of dishes for lunch. Um, They would usually serve dishes like rice and stew for like a weekday lunch. So it's, it's a place where you go have lunch, and then go back to the office. They're places that are just like little shacks by the roadside or they're places that have like dining spaces. But it's it's typically a notable thing about because it's like it's typically roadside and they serve lunch cuisine. Like rice and stew, you would see um, amala with bigiri. And they would do, um, you would see, you could sometimes see pounded yam, but I feel like that's more like a celebration weekend meal. You would see like ewa going, which is a, a bean dish that's like cooked for hours until the beans melt into a sort of like a, a soup with, a, with onions um, and it's topped with like a fiery chili paste. Fried plantains you would see at Bukas. Um, but Buka culture is like lunch culture. Mm, gosh, sounds so delicious. <laughs> so let's talk about some of your family's cooking. What is your father's specialty in the kitchen? Oh, gosh. Um, my dad used to make several versions of a fisherman's soup or stew where he would make the, and he calls his alapa, um, which is not the traditional name for it, I found in the, in the while I was doing the research for the book. Um, but it's a really nice brothy soup where he makes this, these um, dumplings and from yam and puts it into the soup to thicken the soup. But you also have these like little yam dumplings. Um, But he loved seafood. And on his way back from, he used to work on on Lagos Island, but on his way back from the island on Fridays, he would buy some fresh fish. And then Saturday or like Friday, like Friday nights, he would make this um, brothy soup. And so fisherman stew and alapa are both two things that my dad was was a great cook. Um, on. I love that. And then Sunday was chicken day at your family's house and yes. your, mo- your mother had her <laughs> own dish. Yeah, clay pot chicken. Um, Sunday with, (laughs) so I grew up on a farm in the city because my dad was such a, he loved being surrounded by green and just farm animals and things. And so in the middle, like imagine like in the Brooklyn of New York City, we have like a working farm with like pigs and chickens and Amazing. I know. (laughs) And I didn't realize how different that was until I moved here. So we had lots animals but Sunday was like the day that we would get a chicken from the garden and have it for dinner 
<laughs> but yeah, Sunday was like chicken day and my mom would bring out her clay pot and put the chicken in it with all these spices and make some rice, um, some coconut rice. And she had this special seasoning that she would put on the chicken. And the first time I went back, she made that. It was like a whole Sunday ritual, but she made that. And it made me think of how sweet that was for her to do that. I understand that your mother was a food scientist and she worked for mm-hmm. Cadbury. Yes. Yes, she did. So you grew up with chocolate in the house? I did. I did. I grew up with chocolate and like five pound bags of candy, of like assorted candies. And she would get all these things in the mail. And I, I just thought that that's how kids grew up. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's obviously not. Um, but yeah, my mom was a food scientist and like a lot of my early introduction to food was definitely through her. Do you have a favorite Cadbury bar? I, hmm, I like Curly Whirly. <gasps> I love Curly yeah. Whirly. <laughs> yeah, I like Curly Whirly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel bad that American kids mo- I don't know what Curly Whirly is. I know. <laughs> so good. Uh, so if people have never made Nigerian food before, and mm-hmm. and for this question, we are going to remove jollof from the answer. Mm, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, what would be the first dish that you would have people make from everyday Lagos? Mm, I would have them make the atta din din. Because that's like, that's a relish, that's a pepper relish that I use as a base in a lot of dishes. And so make a big batch of atadintin, it's bell peppers, red bell peppers, onions, some garlic, ginger, and some oil and salt. And I use that relish in everything. It's the base for, for if you were making jollof rice, it's the base for that. If you're making... um my braised goat and stew. It's the base for that. And so it's the base for everything, for a lot of dishes in my everyday Lagos, but it's also just good on its own. It's like a pepper relish that you can top, you can put on top of eggs, you can put on top of just steamed rice, you can eat with spaghetti if you're so, if you're, if the spirit calls you to. Um, Yeah, you could really do anything with it. So it's something that you could like add to dishes that you already have on hand, or you it's a base for more dishes in my everyday Lagos. And it's called Atadindin. Thank you so much, Yuande. I would really love talking to you. Oh, this was so lovely. Thank you for having me. That was Berlin-born, Lego-raised, Brooklyn-based Yuande Komolafe. She is a food writer, recipe developer, and food stylist, and her new book is My Everyday Legos. Find a recipe for her Atta Din Din on her website, as well as a crushed yam fritter recipe to go with it. It's all at kcrw.com slash goodfood. Our cookbook show continues in a minute with one of my favorite food writers. She shares kitchen wisdom from a lifetime of cooking. That's next. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. When life sucks, it doesn't stop sucking just because you've made the best pavlova of your life, but these things also don't hurt. 
I love this sentence from noted food writer B. Wilson. Her latest book, The Secret of Cooking, was born out of an enormous personal life change, grief, and a desire to find ways forward. Hi, B. Hi. Welcome back to Good Food. It's lovely to have you. Oh, it's great to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. How did your relationship with cooking evolve during your life and change as you were working on your latest project? So, yeah, I've always loved cooking. So in a way, it's surprising. I've been a food writer for such a long time, more than 20 years, but this is my first cookbook. So in a way, I almost feel like this book was sort of the promise I made to myself as a little girl sitting at the kitchen table reading my mum's cookbooks, which would have included things by Mada Jaffrey or Claudia Roden um, or an English food writer called Elizabeth David. And I kind of had dreamt of doing a book like that all of those years. So in a way, it felt like something I was always going to do. But as you've already alluded to, my relationship with food cooking everything, life changed quite dramatically a little while into the project because I thought I was having this happy pandemic. It was the first lockdown in the UK of 2020 and such beautiful weather. Everyone kept saying, you know, it's never been sunnier or prettier, but obviously lots of people were suffering so much with their jobs or financially. And I kept having these conversations with people saying, we're just so lucky, we can both work from home and we have a happy home life. And I just didn't see what was coming because he left quite suddenly after 23 years of marriage at the end of that first lockdown. And I still had to write the book. I had got the contract to write the book. And at first I thought, how can I do this? And then... In a funny way, it was the thing that saved me. Um, And I was so grateful for it because all of these things I'd half known to be true all my life, that cooking can bring you back to your own senses or be a kind of therapy. I was living it and I really found the truth of it. I can't even imagine how devastating that was. And particularly as it relates to appetite, because when we're so deep in grief, it seems that we lose our appetite completely. Yes. Well, our appetite can go haywire. I mean, I think I've written about this in earlier books, The Psychology of Eating, but I think with some people, you you react to stress by overeating. For other people, you lose your appetite completely. I found, yeah, that my appetite really could come and go. And that's another reason the, the cooking helped, because I was having to cook for the kids. I had, I have three kids, but my oldest one had already left home to go to college, but my two younger kids were at home and I had to cook for them. And then suddenly there was food on the table, so I wasn't going to not join them, even though I often didn't particularly feel like it. You know, I don't want to get into sort of grief comparison, but I think divorce is a it's an awful form of pain, but it's quite a normal form of pain compared to other things people go through. But for me, cooking definitely helped. It, it grounded me. Can you speak a bit about the relationship between stress and cooking and how a shift in how we think about cooking can be a panacea of sorts? Yes. So I'm struck that in our culture, we are endlessly talking about cooking itself 
as a source of stress. And of course, in many ways, it can be. I mean, this is part of what inspired this book in the first place, that I love cooking. I've got thousands of cookbooks in my house. I've got cookbooks for every cuisine under the sun and every possible occasion you might name. But what I didn't have was a cookbook that would help me to decide which of the many cookbooks to use on a rainy Tuesday evening when I was hungry and the kids were hungry and we needed something right now. And what I wanted to explore in the cookbook was, are there ways that you can just somehow cut through that and get back to the kitchen as this place of joy? Because when you're in the middle of it, cooking's wonderful. It's the closest that many of us get to being like children again, kind of mixing potions in the playground. You get all of those good smells and good sights and just I often feel that you can be sort of fed by a meal as a cook before you've even sat down to eat Um, but in order to reach that point you kind of have to change your mindset and maybe adopt ways of cooking which are less perfectionist I mean that's that was one of my big things yeah you talk about reducing our options and the sweetness of routine how do you use this idea of routine to make things easier um, in your kitchen? I use it in a number of ways. I mean, I'm probably someone that rebels slightly against routine, much as I admire people who plan out every single meal of the week and sit down on a Sunday evening with a notepad. Something about my spirit rebels against that. But one of the things I found was to try and adopt different strategies so you could both have some form of structure to hold on to, but also feel free. Instead of batch cooking entire dishes, universal sauces. So I have a series of recipes for sauces. One is for a green coriander chutney sauce. One is for a red curry. One is for a yellow laksa curry. And then there's one that's inspired by the flavors of French bouillabaisse fish soup, but I prefer having it with celery root and butter beans or different vegetables, anything really. And I keep those sauces in the freezer. And then if I come back and think, I need dinner, I don't know what to make, I've got the sauce there, so I've got the base of the flavor of dinner. But then I can look in the fridge and combine it with anything I happen to have. And it's somehow for me that hit some kind of sweet spot between a sense of structure and a sense that I'm not going to have to reinvent the wheel every night and start from scratch. I love that idea of the universal sauces. So let's talk about water, something Mm. that might be the most overlooked ingredient in the kitchen. What are some lessons that you've learned about it? I have a chapter on seasoning, and I'm trying to talk about three forms of seasoning that I think get overlooked crunch or texture, lemon or acid. I mean, obviously, Samin Nosrat did a very good job of explaining to us why acid matters. But then water as well. And I think water is just incredible. And it's one of those things we don't talk about because the thought of adding water to food sounds quite bland. But so often when you think the answer to a dish is yet another pinch of salt, you add a little bit of water, somehow softens everything out and makes the flavours come together. I use water in so many different ways in the kitchen. I add a tiny bit to my vinaigrette and it has this lovely softening effect. Again, it's a really obvious trick, but it's not something that I knew when I was younger and learning to cook. 
which is at any kind of source as you're reducing it. You can just keep adding water and adding water and then carry on reducing and reducing. And it, water is one of those things that gives you control over the cooking process. Another thing is if you're stir frying or sauteing and you're just thinking this is just taking a bit too long, you just flick in a tiny bit of water, not so much that you're actually boiling the ingredients, but just enough to create that little bit of steam. And the effect is almost magical. It speeds up the cooking. Um, and then other things, like sometimes you might have a loaf of bread, particularly like something like a baguette, for example, and you think, oh, that's so sad. It's gone so stale and hard. It's beyond saving. And you just soak it in water, more water than you'd imagined, to the point where you think this is going to be spongy and horrible. Wring it out slightly, put it in a very hot oven. 10, 15 minutes later, the bread is restored, Lazarus-like. It's yeah, it's sort of magical water. I, I love the idea of wringing out a baguette. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's That's funny really, thinking about a loaf of bread. As, I mean, it felt, the first time I did that, I thought this almost feels disrespectful to the loaf. It felt, no. I mean, you can, you can start cautiously. You can do that trick with just a few droplets. But the more I did it, the more I found you can actually go in quite heavy with the water and it somehow works. Thank you so much, B. It's a pleasure. Thank you. B. Wilson is a home cook, journalist, and author of some of my favorite books on food. We've been discussing her sixth and latest work, The Secrets of Cooking. We have a recipe for her celery root and butter bean bouillabaisse on our website. It's the perfect dish this time of year. Just head to kcrw.com slash goodfood. Last year, as part of its Something in Common exhibition, the Central Library in downtown LA put up a display of 99 cookbooks. From radiologists and rock collectors to zoo docents and Air Force wives, all of these books were written by groups of ordinary people. To artist, curator, and writer Suzanne Joskow, they are a sociological treasure trove. She's been collecting these self-published efforts in her online Community Cookbook Archive LA. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Evan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this. Your archive is extraordinary. Oh, thank you so much. So just for the purposes of, of laying out kind of a definition, how, how do you describe what a community cookbook is? Sure, that is an excellent question. And of course, this is just my own loose definition of what makes a community cookbook. But for the purposes of this project, I have defined a community cookbook as a group of recipes from a collective group or organization rather than an individual author. It's usually, as you mentioned, a book that features home cooks rather than professional chefs. Uh, typically, community cookbooks are also self-published, uh, which one of the reasons for that is that they are often used as a fundraising tool. And actually, historically, community cookbooks were often put out by women's groups who didn't have access to other modes of fundraising. And then something else I like to talk about is community cookbooks are really strongly connected to place. So for this project, I focus specifically on LA County 
And it is very common for the books to celebrate place in all sorts of ways. Do community cookbooks have a heyday, a certain time when more were published than ever? You know, that is such an interesting question. I, I would say, in my experience, that somewhat is connected to the history of publishing wherever you are looking. So Los Angeles was somewhat late to uh, the publishing industry, even for the West Coast. It was behind San Francisco. So book publishing didn't take off here until the 1880s. And almost immediately, there was a community cookbook published. Um, So some of it has to do with kind of the physical resources for publishing. And of course, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, companies that would help you publish a community cookbook popped up. And so I think there was a flourishing of community cookbooks during that time because there was a kind of easier publishing resource. The same thing with kind of photocopying and Xerox created an opportunity with a low-cost point to self-publishing. So that is an era I would point to, but I also really do like to point out community cookbooks, certainly in Los Angeles, span three centuries. So you mentioned that almost as soon as publishing began in Los Angeles in the 1880s, a community cookbook sprang up. What can you tell us about that one? Sure. So that uh, was a book called uh, Los Angeles Cookery, which was published by a church ladies' aid society in 1881. Um, That one is not in the archive uh, that I have, although the oldest book I have in the archive is from 1894, also published by a church women's group. That one is called How We Cook in Los Angeles. Of course, no one singular book can take on that title of saying how one cooks in Los Angeles. But again, you see that interest from the very beginning of kind of presenting a story of food that's really connected to where these women lived. Do you see as time moves on different ethnic communities represented or were they primarily kind of white women based in churches and women's groups that were publishing these these books? So that is a really excellent and important question. Um, you see all sorts of immigrant groups, even later on, Native groups taking oral tradition and documenting it for the first time in their own words. Everyone is represented in these community cookbooks. There are quite a few bilingual cookbooks in the in the archive, but I know there are many more out there that are just simply not in English at all that I, I have not come across because that doesn't show up in the way that I'm researching or I, I might see one and not even know that's what it was if I didn't speak the language. Um, but to answer your question more specifically, yes, almost from the beginning, certainly from the turn of the last century, you see real evidence in these cookbooks of the wide range of Los Angeles. In the process of doing this and deciding to focus so hard on LA, which is really impressive to me because I know that my own sort of searching for older books it is somewhat driven by being enticed by a cover, um, that I really admire your focus. What have you learned about LA history and culture in particular that you're just thrilled to be able to share? Something that has come up in focusing on L.A. County is so much of L.A.'s own history as it connects to food shows up in these books. So as I mentioned, whether that's use of indigenous plants like acorn flour or nods to more modern 
agriculture that was really entwined with Los Angeles's growth. So much of the way LA told the story of itself to the rest of the world as it started to grow was about bountiful produce. And you see a lot of evidence of that in these cookbooks. Uh, Early recipe books will have pages and pages of preserving citrus because, of course, there was an abundance of citrus available. Um, And you also see a specificity and kind of expected familiarity with plant varietals. A recipe calling, you know, not just for plums, but for green gauge plums or a certain kind of musk melon. Um, There's an anticipation that the reader will have access to certain local produce, particularly in the earlier books. Um, And then there's also anticipation of access to imported ingredients um, available at immigrant-run markets. So there's a really early vegetarian cookbook that was put out in the early 1900s by the Theosophical Society. And that book calls for soy or or in some places show you. And there's an expectation that that was available in Los Angeles, and it was. Um, you, You write that the domestic kitchen was long the domain of women. And so these books give particular insight into gendered expectations and experiences. Tell us about that. Yeah, I I mean, I often like to talk about community cookbooks as subversive narratives. And uh, this surprises some people because what can seem, you know, more staid than a quote sewing circle cookbook. Uh, But the inclination to dismiss actually offers these books a lot of storytelling power. I I say so much is smuggled inside of community cookbooks well beyond recipes. As a result of being self-published, These books serve as primary sources and they offer snapshots of lives that often weren't documented in professional publications. So you end up seeing not just recipes in these books, but photographs, personal essays, poems, and as we talked about, lots and lots of hand-drawn illustrations, um, sometimes photographs of women's clubhouses that are now long gone, and the only place they were really documented were in these cookbooks. And and to that, uh, I'm wondering, you have all of these cookbooks that have so much import that go beyond food on a plate, and yet they are recipe books. Could you pick one recipe and just tell us about it? There is no one quintessential recipe from this project. I think that's the takeaway too. There's nothing universal about these cookbooks other than the fact that we all eat food. I think that the, the pleasure is somewhat in their distinctness. But I think one recipe that might be fun to share is for tomato soup cake, uh, which some people may be familiar with. I don't know, have you ever made a tomato soup cake? I, I never have, but I am immediately <laughs> intrigued. I had thought of it as sort of a oddity of the 1970s. And the recipe I have is, I'm going to share is from that era, but it turns out it's much older recipe than that. It dates back to like 1920s, 1930s cookbook put out by Campbell Soup Company. Um, And they had a newly (laughs) condensed tomato soup and they were trying to teach women about different ways that they might use this at home, what they might buy this soup for. And of course they thought, why not dessert? And so it starts out as a marketing idea, but then 
you know, trickles down into being a family favorite. And here you have a 1978 recipe for it, no longer even connected back to Campbell's necessarily. But I thought it's a fun one to share because it it's unusual. But then once I made it, I have to say it's not so dissimilar from a zucchini or carrot cake, a spice cake. It has a cream cheese frosting. I love that. Thank you so much. It's been so interesting. Thank you so much for your interest in this project. And it's just such an honor to speak with you. Thank you. That was Suzanne Joskow, the founder and curator of the Community Cookbook Archive LA. Head to kcrw.com slash goodfood for a link to her project. You can peruse hundreds of cookbooks and recipes, including that tomato soup cake. And if you have a community cookbook from Los Angeles County that you want to share with Suzanne, we have information on how to get in touch with her. The Market Report is on deck and Chef Jeremy Fox has ideas for what to do with persimmons. Stay with us. I'm Evan Kleiman and this is Good Food. Let's head to the farmer's market to find out what is in peak season this first week of December in Southern California. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. It is always a pleasure to see Chef Jeremy Fox at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Jeremy is the culinary force behind Rustic Canyon and Birdie G's. He's also the author of the book on vegetables, and I always look forward to learning new ideas and ways of looking at produce every time we talk. Hi, Jeremy. Hello. Let's talk about what the dining room at Birdie G's looks like right now. When I walk in, what would I see? You will see hundreds and hundreds of persimmons hanging from the rafters, from um, anything we can find uh, to hang anything from. Over the track lighting, over the dining room, the steel bars, over the kitchen line. Very festive time of year. It really ties the room together. (laughs) So this is what many people would know as hoshigaki season. Describe what hoshigaki is. Hoshigaki is a... uh, Japanese and also Korean method of preserving persimmons. You peel them when they're unripe, hang them, and then you you massage them after about a a week, and you do that on like a a daily or every other day basis. And that continues for about three to four weeks, depending on, you know, the weather. And then they get um, put into uh, Ziploc bags, and every week they come out, get massaged a little bit and then put back in. And I find that um, sealing them off from oxygen and then reintroducing them as you kind of solely massage them really gets the, uh, the kind of sugar bloom on the, on the exterior. Wow. And so describe the end result after all this work. The end result is something that tastes exactly like a date, but better. It's like a higher acidity than a date. A lot of times they taste almost quince-like and kind of like the floral quality to them. Every piece of fruit is different, and so they're going to have different different sugar content, different sweetnesses, and, and then in different areas of the restaurant, it produces a different product as well. So what do you do with the end product? Oh, we don't do anything with it. We just, I just stack them in bags, and I look at them and say, <laughs> this, look how cool these are. No, we, we do anything from a blood sausage dish that we've done, the blood sausage burger. We've done it with uh, with like chicken liver mousse. We do these hoshigaki cakes, rice pudding, different, just kind of different things. Cheese, it's really good with as a as like a composed cheese course. Yeah. I understand that persimmons at large are one of your favorite 
produce items throughout the year. They are, and it, you know, until I was probably 27, I had no idea what a what a, what a persimmon was. Coming from the East Coast, uh, I, I didn't grow up eating them, but I, I, I love them. We have you know we have different dishes at Birdie G's in Rustic Canyon, and the one at Birdie G's is we've done the same dish every fall since we opened. We call it the persimmon enigma because it's kind of esoteric for Birdie G's, at least at the time. It was persimmons with a yuzu kosho vinaigrette with burrata and um, like an anchovy oil. It was unlike any other dish at Birdie G's and people just went crazy for it. So we, we just bring back the same dish every year and it's it's like an enigma, like I said. And is that one with fresh persimmons? Fresh persimmons, yeah. I don't, it depends on what's available, but by the time we get to like the, the, the plated dishes, we're using uh, JJ's Lone Daughter persimmons. Right now at Russet Canyon, it's a, uh, it's a mix of the fuyus and the uh, coffee cake persimmons, which have like that nice kind of brown interior and uh, I think a higher, higher sugar level and you know, have like a honey flavor to it. There we're serving it with uh, our homemade pancetta and arugula from either tamai or uh, uh, floribella, depending on the day of the week. And it's quite delicious. Oh, it sounds amazing. And Jeremy, you're about to launch what has become a yearly tradition, the eight nights at Birdie G's, where you bring guest chefs in from around the country, people like Sean Brock and David Kench. What can we expect from that? And do you think we'll see any of those persimmons on the menu? I'm sure we'll see persimmons. Um, it's a lot of chefs and a lot of different menus coming in. I hear Sean Brock is going to be using our hoshigaki with his country ham, maybe. So that should be exciting. I'm not sure if he's bringing his own, but he's more than welcome to use ours. Wow, that sounds incredible. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you, Jillian. That was Jeremy Fox, chef owner at Birdie G's and Rustic Canyon. We will have a link to that eight nights of Birdie G's at kcrw.com slash goodfood. You can also check out photos of the dining room at Birdie G's on our website. It's really a sight to see all those hoshigaki hanging from the ceiling. Jesse Ruiz is the market coordinator for Murray Family Farms, where Jeremy buys his hachia persimmons. And Jesse, you have a number of different persimmons here on the table. Of course, you grow the fuyus, the hachias, but also several more. So I thought we would just go down the table and see what you have. Let's start with those more classic varieties, maybe the fuyu for start. I know you're at the end of the season, but share with us a little bit about the fuyu. So for the fuyu persimmons, those are some of my most favored fruit that we have like throughout any time of the year. That one, you could eat firm or soft. It doesn't have that astringency to it like our hachia persimmon and the other persimmons. Um, Really good for salads. I eat it, I cut it up, eat it like an apple as is, great snack. And then moving forward with the hachia persimmons, if you have a sweet tooth, those will definitely fix that. (laughs) Definitely. The hachias are the ones that you have to eat. They're almost jello-like when you want to start eating them because if you eat them hard, you are going to get a mouthful of tannins, right? Yeah, that is correct. And I noticed that some persimmons have seeds and some don't. A lot of that has to do with pollination. I know most of our fuyu persimmons do not have seeds. However, we have a select few. In our hachia persimmons, I've never come across a seed. And then we have cute little lotus plums. Also in the persimmon family, the larger ones will have seeds. So tell us about the lotus plums. It's one of the most beautiful fruit, I think. I sometimes buy them for floral arrangements. Can you eat them as well? 
It is completely edible. Um, all the fruit anyways, not the stem or the little leaves. Around this time of year between, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, if we have them up to Christmas, we get a lot of people that use them as floral arrangements, uh, decor on their table, just about anything to make their centerpiece more beautiful. And once the fruit is soft and almost brown, it tastes like a sweet potato. You have to let it get soft, though, in order to eat. Mm. And to give people a sense of the scale, they're almost like persimmons that are the size of blueberries. They're teeny tiny. Yeah. You have one last persimmon on the table right now. Which one is it? It's a little smaller than the Fuyu. That guy is called a Saicho persimmon, very, very similar to the Hachia persimmon. So it will have the tannins if you eat it firm. However, if you let it get soft, it has a very similar taste to the Hachia persimmon, but I find it to be a smidge creamier. Mm, I love that. Well, we will enjoy them while they're here, and we have a lot of citrus to look forward to. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you. Jesse Ruiz is the market coordinator for Murray Family Farms. Right now you can find their persimmons at the Wednesday Santa Monica Farmers Market and the Sunday Mar Vista Farmers Market. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Brush. And a special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. If anyone tries that tomato soup cake this weekend, please send me a photo. I'll meet you back here next week for a brand new episode of Good Food.